Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 58, Tyranny and Defeat. We've rather wandered around with John, don't you think? It just occurred to me last week that we probably need to get on with it a bit. And so today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start on the journey to a rather green, peaceful place by the River Thames called Runnymede, which contains, incidentally, a square of sovereign territory of the United States. We'll end that journey next week. The first instalment today is to discuss how John gets to the point where, in 1215, he faces rebellion. Now, up to this point, I get the feeling that I've actually been rather nice to John, and you could be forgiven for thinking that really, there's no difference between John and his father. After all, John was accused during his life of being pretty harsh and exacting of his barons, and we've been hearing about how good John was at administration and stuff. OK, he's had a bit of a spatette with the Pope, but that's been okay with the barons. So really, apart from the small thing about, you know, losing an empire, maybe John wasn't such a bad egg after all. And this, in the view of a number of historians, would be a perfectly acceptable point of view. So, let's look at some of the things that made John a pretty nasty piece of work, and why I'd have been on the side of the barons if I'd been at Runnymede. At the heart of the problem is the way that John manages the relationship with his barons, and also the legacy that he acquires from his Angevin predecessors. Henry II had restored and extended royal power, bringing the barons back into line after the anarchy. It hadn't been all plain sailing, given the revolt of 1173 and 74. Both he and Richard had in the main managed to walk the tightrope, however, between pushing the barons too hard and causing rebellion, and weakly allowing royal rights to be reduced. The problem with John is not necessarily what he does, but how he does it and how far he pushes it. Last week, I mentioned in a shallow, trivial way that essentially devalued the noble practice of history that I would be willing to sell my goodwill for a good deal less than John did. 
Of course, no one's taken me up on the offer, given that my goodwill isn't really worth the rough end of a pineapple, as opposed to the king's goodwill, which could make your family, or alternatively, the lack of which could break it. The king's will was an integral part of the royal justice system. Now, we've talked quite a bit about royal justice and the way that it's been codified and extended, and there's no doubt that justice was made fairer and more efficient. But you also need to understand that it's accepted that it's not completely impartial justice, as we might expect today. No one was surprised when all the Angevin kings, not just John, manipulated courts to discriminate against their enemies. So, here's one little example. In 1206, a chap called Alexander of Calderbeck had a plea about an estate in Cumberland in the northwest of England. John delayed it indefinitely according to the court records and so quite openly because it was not pleasing to the king that he should have a jury. The king's will was therefore an important thing. And in fact, it was something you could buy. So, here's an entry in a pipe roll, i.e. the royal financial records. Ralph of Clare renders account of £60 for having the king's goodwill. As it happens, this is from Henry II's reign, just to make the point that when John also does this sort of thing, it's not unusual. It's not some extraordinary piece of tyranny. And the point is that royal will was effectively a recognised part of the constitution of the state, whatever people thought about it, and however unpopular or unfair it might be. For example, one charter talked of remedy by law or king, making the point that the king was not necessarily subject to law. A legal text of the time related that the forest laws in particular were based, quote, on the arbitrary decree of the king. This is the same kind of thing much quoted from the laws of Justinian, i.e. what pleases the prince has the force of law. This is a phrase I use in my household often, with myself as the prince, obviously. How we laugh. So, the king fiddled with legal judgments and everybody felt the king had something of a history and probably a right to do so. The royal legalists were of the view that this was absolutely fine. So, a chap called Richard Fitzneil, talking of the rights of king at the time, wrote, Their subjects have no right to question or condemn their actions, which is clear enough. Many of their subjects, though, were quite clear that this was utter pants. The constant refrain from the barons was an insistence on custom and law. So, before we get into a doom loop about the quality of justice at the time, we should note that the system was quite strong enough for barons to use it to complain about the arbitrary use of royal will and bring cases against the king himself, and actually kings appeared happy enough for this to happen. More and more, the use of royal will came to be contrasted with the concept of law and a regular legal process. It's clear from the Magna Carta that barons actually liked royal justice, even though it took away a lot of authority from their own manorial courts and therefore potentially reduced their revenues. But the emergence of a legal process with common judgments was increasingly popular. The baron's land was generally split up into holdings all over the country, so the administration of manorial justice was something of a struggle. And also, as society became more complicated, people were looking for more regular rules to manage it all. So, John was facing new pressure to operate in a less arbitrary way, Another role for the king was to impose some order on the law, i.e. to create a common law. 
because one of the problems was okay, so the barons frequently insisted that the king needed to be governed by accepted custom. But what exactly are those customs? I mean, they're not written down in one nice, clear place. If they are written down, they're very vague, and they're often different in different parts of the country. And they're getting created all over the place like flies in a bacon sandwich. So, for example, if the king prescribed strict guidelines for standard weights and measures, you can bet that the next thing that would happen would be that someone would buy the exemption from the rules for the merchants, for example, who didn't want to change the size of their looms. For the modern mind, it's absolute blessed chaos. Another example. It was clearly a custom that when a man died, the heir had to pay what was called a relief to take over their inheritance. But there's no clear and final definition of how much had to be paid. And the king rather liked it that way, because he could then set the price, and usually it therefore became a matter of private negotiation. When your king was sensible and structured and reasonable, this kind of worked fine. When he was unpredictable, capricious, needed money and had a mean sense of humour, then you were in the poop. Also, kings themselves were not mad innovators who saw the customs of the land as daft restrictions on their power and will, things to be swept aside. They had the same respect as every medieval man for the customs of their forefathers. The Angevin kings constantly refer and defer to them. But at the same time, they did have a job to do. They had to increase the efficiency of the state and deal with a changing and developing situation. If they didn't, they'd atrophy and die. So there's a basic contradiction at the heart of all of this. The king is trying to impose regularity through a single process of justice on its subjects, but at the same time insists on his rights to ignore those rules according to its arbitrary will, to make money and to make genuinely positive changes. Bear in mind, by the way, that one of the things that makes it really, really difficult for the barons is that they are basically doing exactly the same things at home as well. So they are being arbitrary, and they are trying to squeeze their own vassals and villagers. They all realise that if the king is being asked to clean out his stables, they'll probably have to clean out their own, which could be more than a bit sore. I am conscious of warbling. What am I saying then, just to summarise? Item 1. It was accepted that Angevin kings were an arbitrary lot, and that the king's will was something you just had to deal with. If you wanted justice and success you'd better have the king's favour. Item 2. This is often a matter for personal negotiation between the great men and the king, which is fine if the king is a reasonable man. Item 3. It's not simple. There is pressure for regularity and process from both the barons and the king, and there is pressure to remain arbitrary from both the barons and the king. OK, how are we feeling? Let's talk about item two a bit more and the reassuring line that it's fine if you are dealing with a reasonable man. John's defenders point out that the principles of royal government were laid down much earlier and that in principle he worked in exactly the same way as his predecessors had done, that the underlying pressures are there towards change for him to contend with. But we have to accept that Magna Carta was the product of a political crisis it's not some reasonable negotiation about how to run the place better. And the biggest cause of that political crisis was the unbridled use of power by John. In the loss of Normandy, we've seen that John cut himself off from most of his barons and relied on mercenary servants and surrounded himself with dependent household knights. This remains true to a degree throughout his reign. 
Yes, his court contains great landholders and churchmen, just as it should do. But many key appointments are to men considered foreigners and mercenaries. So, for example, William the Marshal is replaced as the royal official in Gloucestershire in the west of England by a man called Fawkes de Bruté, a mercenary seneschal who had fought with great bravery in France. So point one is that John is divorced from the kind of personal relationships that are so important to rule at this time. We also begin to see the phrase that, let me tell you, will become familiar when we get to Henry III, the reliance on aliens. By this, I don't mean small green men with little waving antennae, that would indeed be news, but men from outside England. This seems like an example of how the loss of empire began to encourage a sense of nationhood, though I wouldn't want to press the point too hard. But a prime example is the appointment as justicier of the Frenchman Peter de Roche in 1213. Point number two is that John was madly paranoid about his barons. He just didn't trust him, and in return, they just didn't trust him right back. This led to actions which weakened the bonds of allegiance. For example, he took hostages, which is perfectly normal, and he used them. You have given us your son as a hostage, he pointedly reminded the Earl of Huntingdon. Therefore, we require you to yield to us your castle at Fotheringhay. By and large, all these hostages were pretty well looked after, but John wasn't afraid to use them. In July 1212, as we've heard, he hanged the hostages of 28 Welsh chieftains, and this made everybody else feel nervous too. John's lack of trust meant that he chose to rule by coercion and fear. One favourite and consistent policy was the use of financial debt as a lever, and went way further than his dad or his brother had ever done. This could often be by charging outrageous prices for favours, which meant that the asker of the favours had to agree a financing plan with him and pay back in instalments. This meant that John could be nice. Oh, don't worry about that. You can pay it back when you've got time. Or, alternatively, he could at any point in time take the pay up now or I'll send the boys round approach. There are just billions of examples of this. In all these examples, bear in mind that the average baronial income was something in the region of 300 marks a year. A small minority of barons might be up in the 600 marks a year area, and the top guys, the real big boys, might be on 1,200. So one reasonable question actually is why on earth the barons take on the most daft deals which an angelfish could see would never offer a reasonable return on investment. Here are a couple of good examples. Thomas of Erdington promised 5,000 marks for the wardship of a Fitzalan barony, so that's going to take quite a few years to pay off, but might just work out, I guess. Geoffrey of Mandeville, on the other hand, paid 20,000 marks to be able to marry John's former wife, Isabella of Gloucester. And since John kept most of the lands, that's going to be really tough to justify to the board. But of course, very often, these deals are ones that the baron simply has no choice in, and the biggest example of this was relief, i.e. the payment to be made to inherit your land. There was a kind of understanding that £100, i.e. 150 marks, was the right sort of level. In John's reign, 600 marks was the standard. John de Lacey was charged 7,000 marks. William de Stoutville was charged £10,000, for example. They simply couldn't pay this kind of thing. Poor old William had paid off just £2 by 1230 and John is capricious. You might think you've made a deal, but you haven't. 
A particularly nice one is the powerful William de Mowbray, who paid the extremely handsome sum of 2,000 marks for the royal favour in respect of a court case. John pocketed the money and then simply let the case go against William. So how do you deal with this kind of insecurity? What are the rules? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You simply can't help but feel that John really enjoys all this stuff, enjoys making people feel the weight of his power. He indulges his nasty sense of humour as well. He was cruel and mocking. And you have to imagine being in a conversation like this. I mean, it was terrifying for all but the most powerful and self confident. It reminds me, for some reason, of learning Latin, which I was unfortunate enough to have to do for five years at school. It was a complete mystery, a foreign country, and as we all sat there desperately avoiding eye contact with the teacher, I knew that if he happened to pick on me, it was going to be agony. I have a feeling that it could be the same way that it felt preparing for a visit from the king or attending his court. A few real examples. Robert of Vaux had to offer the king five palfreys in 1210. A palfrey is a, a riding horse. The reason in the record read that he would keep quiet about the wife of Henry Pennell. So what's gone on there then? John's picked up on some gossip and used it. Or maybe he's encouraged the confidence and then turned the tables. Either way, it's not great. And then there's an entry in 1204 that reads... The wife of Hugh of Neville promises the Lord King 200 chickens that she might lie one night with her husband. Now, of course, I'm sure the listeners to this podcast make every night a 200 chicken night. But while if you were the king, you might think this was all jolly funny, I bet Mrs. Neville, or at least Mr. Neville, wasn't laughing. At the same time as John was picking on Robert of Vore and Hugh of Neville's sexual lives, he was himself guilty of the traditional stream of royal concubines. He was, of course, nowhere near as prolific as his grandfather Henry I with his 21 bastards, but he does have at least five, and definitely had mistresses when married to Isabella of Angoulême as well as Isabella of Gloucester. There was an unknown one to whom he sent a chaplet of roses in 1212. There was the widow Huys, Countess of Ormal. 
and there was Clementia and Suzanne. I doubt anyone really minded all of this, with the possible exception of the Isabels, but John had the reputation for lusting after the wives and daughters of the barons, and that was a problem. When the king came to town, you locked up your wives and daughters. The story goes that when he visited Eustace de Vizi, the Lord of Anic in Northumbria, he took a shine to de Vizi's wife and tried to insist that she spend the night with him. Mrs de Vizi managed to elegantly wriggle out of it by sending a maid in the dark instead. There's the story of the churchman who threw himself on his knees in front of John to ask for his royal favour. John came down from his throne and he knelt beside the kneeling man, saying nastily and mockingly, Look, I can kneel as well as you can. I mean, that's just creepy. John's nasty, unpredictable and underhand. Here's a note he wrote to the chapter of York in 1214, telling them not to elect their dean as the archbishop. If, however, you do elect him, he can never hope to have our peace or love. This, however, we wish to keep secret. Added to all of this, then, was the simple fact that he took great men and he destroyed them. William de Briouze is the best example, but William Marshall came jolly close. Basically, the years before Magna Carta showed everyone concerned, in unavoidably clear terms, the weakness of the subject's defence against the feudal prerogative of the crown. Now, I feel the need for some nice, reassuring chronological narrative after all that general stuff. We'd got to 1212. Actually, things were looking pretty good from John's point of view. He'd done a good job in pacifying the neighbours, he was building up a big war chest to take on Philip, and he cared little for the Pope and all his bleatings. But then, John began to feel the heat a bit. The conspiracy of Eustace de Vizi and Fitzwalter was scary. Over the Channel, Philip had assembled a huge fleet ready for invasion. There was a well-recorded madman predicting that John would be dead by next year, and there was a rumour circulating that the Pope had actually deposed John. Plus, John really wanted to get an alliance together to crush Philip, and the Pope's support would help him in that. So, in November 1212, he sent a deputation to Rome. Innocent was no innocent, if you see what I mean, and frankly trusted John not one little bit. But when his legate met John in May 1213, he had a surprise. Not only was John prepared to give in to the Pope's demands, he'd go further. He'd make England and Ireland feudal fiefs of the Pope. This delighted the Pope. Come then, exalted prince, wrote Innocent. Fulfil the promises given, so that God Almighty might ever fulfil any righteous desire of yours and confirm any honourable purpose, enabling you so to walk amid temporal blessings. In fact, the days of John's temporal blessings were limited, but you get a flavour of the enthusiastic loving going on here. It didn't come cheap. John had to pay back 100,000 marks to make good all that fun he'd had with the church lands, which as we know is a king's ransom. Probably just as bad was that he had to pardon the conspirators Eustace de Vizi and Robert Fitzwalter and allow them back into the kingdom. The chroniclers were appalled at what they saw as a craven submission, but it's probable that the king's barons were pretty sanguine and probably even encouraged the deal. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, and the other exiles returned in July 1213. As it happens, Stephen was never to be very comfortable with the whole thing. He was considerably more rigorous about what the relationship between church and state should be than was the Pope. 
as far as Innocent was concerned, John was now his big bud. He'd made his point, and the king could now get on with exercising his royal influence over church appointments. It's true to say that a mass of appointments are now made of papal supporters, but Langton is deeply uncomfortable that there's no improvement in the basic canonical procedure. He's also defensive about the role of the papacy and his legate in exercising power in England. In his view, the key relationship should be between the Archbishop of Canterbury and his king. And now he finds the Archbishop of Canterbury being passed over through a direct relationship between the king and the pope through his legate. Stephen Langton is in no way simply a pawn of the Pope in what follows. In 1213, John was ready to have another hack at Poitou and the French. John was always ready to have a go at the French, but in this case, there was a genuine change in the diplomatic situation. Philip had gathered an enormous fleet and army on the coast of Flanders. John maintained an army on the southeast English coast, but mainly relied on the navy to defend the coast, cruising the channel and raiding. These were big fleets. In May, a massive fleet of 500 ships with 700 knights was given to the command of William of Salisbury, and they set off to make Philip's life difficult. On the 30th of May, they entered the harbour of Dam, on what is now the Belgian coast, which at the time was the port for the city of Bruges. And there they saw hundreds and hundreds of French ships, possibly 1,700, riding at anchor or beached. They'd found the French fleet. And what's more, the main French army was away attacking the Count of Flanders' lands. So Salisbury attacked, and in that first day they destroyed or cut adrift 400 of the French ships. Next day, they disembarked, meaning to do a bit of inland raiding, when to their horror they saw the main French army arriving back and were lucky to be able to get back onto their ships and run away. But Philip was met with the sight of destruction. Any chance he said, damn? No, possibly not, after all, he was French. But anyway, the harbour was blocked by debris, and Philip had to burn all the other ships, so the invasion of England was now officially cancelled. Back at home, the English seamen were, of course, heroes, and William the Marshal's biographer wrote, Never had so much treasure come into England since the days of King Arthur. So, John was ready. Big, crushing victory at Dam. Back in favour with the Pope, let's go. He issued summons for the barons and got exactly the same response he'd had in 1205. The barons wouldn't go. First they made excuses, then the barons of northern England specifically repudiated the summons and said they weren't liable to go abroad, and anyway, they were skint. We get exactly the same situation, with John setting off despite this and looking over his shoulder and realising no one was following. So eventually he agreed to postpone the invasion until the following spring. During the winter, Langton saw his role as digging into the causes of baronial objections and helping them and John come to a reasonable agreement and resolution. There's a document from this period called the Unknown Charter, unknown because none of the chroniclers mention it and because it only came to light in the 19th century. Basically, it reads like a first draft of the Magna Carta. The king certainly didn't sign it, but clearly there were discussions going on. And somehow these discussions managed to lead to a truce between the northern barons and the king, but it was a fragile and uneasy one. Much came to depend on John's grand design, the defeat of Philip and the reconquest of his lands. And things were beginning to look better than they ever had done before. He had the cash. Over 100,000 marks were transferred from the royal castles to be available in the south of England. 
he'd put together an international alliance. Irritated by Philip's high-handed arrogance, William, the Count of Holland, had done homage to John, joined by Renaud, the Count of Boulogne, and Ferrand de Flanders. Then he'd set up an alliance with the German Emperor, Otto IV. Now, Otto was a wealth, and you now all know that this isn't some kind of personal hygiene problem. In Sicily, Frederick the Hohenstaufen, or Ghibelline pretender to the Emperor's throne, had allied with Philip to win his birthright. So, when John proposed a grand alliance against Philip, Otto said, Ja, danke schön, and here was the plan. The Counts of Holland and Flanders and the Emperor of Germany would invade from the north into France. John would take his army over to the southwest of France, to Poitou, and between them, Philip would be squashed like a bug. If he succeeded, it was highly likely that John would be carried along by a wave of prestige and patronage and sweep aside Langton and the Northerners. If he lost... He was poo-bound. So, in early 1214, William of Salisbury was sent off to Flanders with a group of picked mercenaries and plenty of cash. And John himself set off with the main army for La Rochelle, the coastal town in southwest France that had remained in English hands. It all starts very well indeed. From his base on the coast, John marched inland through Angoulême to the Limousin, with barons coming forward left and right to sign up. He arrived at the old enemy, Hugh de Lusignan's county of La Marche, and gave it a good old ravaging. Then he marched south into English-held Gascony to show the flag. And meanwhile, on the northern borders, Philip had assembled an army, but was competing for the World Dithering Championships. It gave John time for an activity that must have made him very happy. He marched into the Lusignan homeland and started laying about him, taking two castles by force. It was enough, and they came in and submitted. The deal was sealed by the marriage of John's daughter to Hugh's son, and full of confidence and happiness, John marched north, ready to take on the French king, shadowed by French forces of Philip and his son Louis. He led them a bit of a dance, suddenly switching direction and taking Nantes on the coast. But by the middle of June, he was successfully inside the ancient capital of Anjou, at Angers. Ahead of him lay the castle of Roche-en-Moine, the stronghold of William de Roche. Deal with that, and he'd be eating croissants and onions in Paris before you could say knife. Furthermore, predicting John's next move, Louis had taken his army to Roche, so here was the chance for the big one. And then disaster. As they approached Roche, the Poitivian barons refused to fight against Louis and went home. John no longer had the men he needed and was forced to withdraw back to the coast. Now this was double trouble. Not only did he have to withdraw, but also he was now no distraction from the invasion in the north. Because it wasn't until the end of July that the foreign coalition army was in place. Nonetheless, on the 27th of July, the two armies, John's allies and the army of France, faced each other in northern France at a place called Bouvines, for a battle that was to be truly decisive. Otto and his allies had around 25,000 men against Philip's 15, though the French were probably stronger in cavalry. The traditional three battles of the Allies were led by Raynor of Boulogne on the right, Otto in the centre, and Count Ferrand de Flanders on the Allied left. Against them, Philip unfurled the Oriflamme, the symbol of the French king at war. The battle started with a confused struggle of cavalry, but on the Allied left, the Flemings were defeated and put to flight, and Ferrand captured. 
In the centre, however, the best infantry of Europe, the Brabanters, were pushing the French centre back. Sir Philip counter-attacked with his cavalry, only to be met by Otto and his own cavalry, and in the melee, Philip himself was unhorsed. The situation was saved for France by the returning cavalry from the right wing, and it was now Otto's turn to be unhorsed, and he was barely able to escape with a few attendants and run back to Germany. The battle wasn't completely over. Renault of Boulogne organised a stand of 700 pikemen in the organisation that would cause the English so many problems at Bannockburn. From behind the group, he and a group of knights made continuous cavalry charges, while the French cavalry was unable to break the screen of defending mercenaries. But in the end, 3,000 men-at-arms were simply overwhelmed, and Raynor and the king's bastard son William of Salisbury were captured. John's hopes died on the field of Bouvines. The students of Paris danced and sang for seven days as well they might. The power of the French monarchy was now firmly established. John negotiated a truce with Philip to last until 1220 and in October 1214 arrived back in England to face that poo we were referring to earlier. While he'd been away, things hadn't got any better. In May, he'd tried to raise a scootage tax, which had been met with widespread refusal to pay. The justicier Peter de Roche was unpopular and seen as one of those aliens the English baronage was beginning to complain about. In the north, Eustace Slovisi was openly defiant. At the end of 1214, we're told that there was a sharp disagreement between John and his barons, but we know no more. But things are, of course, about to get a lot sharper. So, thanks very much for listening, everybody. Have a great week and good luck. <laughs>